The chaotic vote for the next Speaker of the House has ignited criticisms of the overall process as overly partisan. Former Michigan Congressman Justin Amash tweeted, I'm not a current member of Congress, but I do know what's at stake, and I'd gladly serve as Speaker of the House for one term to show people the kind of legislative body we can have if someone at the top actually cares about involving every representative in the work of legislating. Representative Amash joins us now in the Rising Studio to discuss all of this. So glad to have you with us. Thanks so much. So what are your views on what we're seeing? As we're speaking, <laughs> they are voting right now. Representative Chip Roy nominated uh, Byron Donalds. Uh, this is sort of the, the anti-McCarthy candidate for this vote. Um, what do you make of what's happening? Well, I think this is representative government. And for people on the left who talk about democracy all the time, this is what we're seeing. This is how mm -hmm. it's supposed to work. We're supposed to go and duke it out fight each other over the issues, and in this case, the issue is who's going to be Speaker of the House, and it's supposed to take a little while. I don't understand why we're always, we always expect outcomes to happen instantly, mm. and I see that from people in the media all the time saying, like, well, this is an outrage, this is chaotic, et cetera, but this is how it's supposed to work. Yeah, so people have pointed out that this is relatively unprecedented. The last time this happened was 100 years ago, but in days and years past, we have had instances back in, I think, 1856, where there were 133 rounds of voting, which, again, puts, you know, a couple of days of voting into real perspective. And as a consequence, there are opportunities to get concessions, change rules, debate issues of, of real importance. Chip Roy was just saying on the floor that part of the issue is that they want to change rules so that we can have more actual debates instead of having um, basically the speaker being able to say, we're going to keep this out of public discussion what, uh, altogether, despite being issues that are very popular for the people. So I, I want to know what your take is. Do you think this is fundamentally a good move by these 20 or so uh, dissident Republicans to be dissidents in this moment? Yes, absolutely. Now, I can't speak to their individual motives. Each person has their own motive for why they might be doing what they're doing. But the House is fundamentally broken. It's been broken for a long time. We haven't had a vote an amendment vote from the House floor freely offered since 2016, where a member can just go to the House floor and offer an amendment without having the speaker basically pre-screen it and say it's okay. That's not democracy. That's not representative government. And I don't know why people cheerlead that kind of stuff where the, the system just doesn't work at all. We should want our members to go down there and have vigorous debate. And um, we want them to read the bills. It's outrageous that a 5,000-page bill might come to the floor and people are given one day. And then I'll always hear these excuses by people on Twitter saying, well, they've had that um, legislation out there for months, and it's just been in different pieces of legislation, and now it's all been combined. Do you expect members of Congress to read every single piece of legislation <laughs> out there with the expectation that maybe it will be thrown into an right. omnibus at the end of the year? Like, I'm going to read 10,000 bills because maybe 10 of them will end up in an omnibus? It doesn't make any sense. Right. You have to give people time after you know what's in the bill. So you were in Congress as a Republican um, during your last term. You switched and became uh, the first Libertarian member of Congress. You were supportive of efforts uh, to oust uh, Speaker Boehner uh, when that happened. Now, I know from conversations we've had that you ended up not liking how Paul Ryan governed the House. Uh, you, you, I think you've actually said it was it was not not only not an improvement, it was worse. Yeah. I mean, Speaker Boehner seems like a, a great <laughs> Democrat, I mean, in the small D sense, compared to what we've seen from Paul Ryan and Nancy Pelosi. Mm -hmm. uh, all the people touting Nancy Pelosi in the past few weeks, they've had all these celebrations of Nancy Pelosi. She completely shut down the democratic process. She completely shut out everyone. Now, 
on the Democratic side, they don't complain about it as much. Like, the, you'll see the members of Congress will kind of just suck it up and accept it, mm -hmm. whereas on the Republican side, you see more pushback. But it's really a shame, and we need a speaker who will open up the entire process, let everyone participate. It should be a discovery process. We should discover the outcomes. They shouldn't be given to us. It shouldn't be some person at the top saying, here's a piece of legislation, this is it, take it or leave it, yes or no, and if you vote no, I'm booting you off the committees, or I'm gonna tell people not to send you money, or I'm gonna deny you a chairmanship. It shouldn't work like that. It should be an open, deliberative process. I think that's a, such a good point because one of the things that the public is learning right now is how much behind-the-scenes coercion goes on to prevent people from doing things like this, to punish people who step out of line, uh, as I said, what the establishment parties want to do, the way that uh, speakership, uh, sorry, that, that leadership positions on these committees are brokered uh, in a way that I think didn't work out well for progressives last time who bent the knee to Nancy Pelosi, as we've discussed, said they were holding out for good uh, committee positions, said they were holding out for the fight for $15 minimum wage, and saw all of those hopes and dreams go out the window immediately because they had preemptively given up their leverage. So I want to ask you, you've, you've tweeted putting yourself out there as someone who could conceivably be a third-party neutral uh, speaker. Of course, you don't have to be in Congress to actually be Speaker of the House. What do you identify as the fundamental problems here of disunity uh, in Congress? Congress, the inability for Congress to get things done that actually reflect the will of pluralities of Americans. And what would you hope to bring to the table? Well, the, the fundamental problem is the centralization of power. And it's been uh, creeping in that direction over the years. And now we fundamentally have a speaker that has almost ultimate power. Mm -hmm. The speaker controls most of the money. The speaker controls the committee assignments. The speaker controls the chairmanships. The speaker controls what gets to the floor. The speaker controls the amendments. And as the speaker gets stronger, the speaker gets stronger because lobbyists and others know that the speaker has all of this power. And so more money comes into the speaker's office and less goes out to the individual members. So now you have a speaker that controls everything completely. We need to decentralize the process. What I would like to do as speaker is open up the entire place. Everyone should be able to participate. People on the left should be able to participate. People on the right should be able to participate. People used to think that what the Freedom Caucus was about was just helping conservatives. I was one of the founding members of the Freedom Caucus, and I can't speak for how it operates now, okay? I'm not, I'm not trying to defend anything it's done over the past several years. But what I can say is the, the Freedom Caucus was founded with the idea of opening up the House for everyone, allowing everyone to participate. I want AOC to be able to offer amendments. I want Ilan Omar to be able to offer amendments because they're part of the representative process too. Marjorie Taylor Greene should be able to offer amendments. I know a lot of people at home might not like these individual members, but this is the way our system works. People in these districts elected these members they should be able to participate just like anyone else. And that means a lot of so-called moderate members participating and also people on the far right and far left and everyone in between. Everyone should be part of it. And, and occasionally there are policy commonalities between all these people to the Absolutely. extent we're really the policy we're really concentrated on right now. The, the, the highest one at stake seems to be funding for Ukraine or is one that's been mentioned. I, Representative Chip Roy mentioned it uh, as, as why he's supporting uh, Byron Donalds. It's something that many uh, progressive people on the left, many libertarian Republican, many, many very Trumpian Republicans are very concerned about an unlimited commitment to funding 
this effort. Not that we're not we're unsympathetic to Ukraine. It's not about that at all. But it's something clearly the American people want more debate on. And the question is, is leadership willing to have that debate? There's so much there, there's little difference between what Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi and, yeah. and Mitch McConnell and, and other Republican leaders feel about the issue. Yeah, this is why I say we have an oligarchy right now. The centralization of power means that there are basically three, four, five people at most who are really deciding things. It's yeah. the leaders of the parties in, the, in Congress and it's the president of the United States. Those people are deciding everything. And they don't even want these other coalitions to form. They're trying to prevent me from working with progressives on issues where we align. They're trying to prevent other conservatives from working with with liberals or progressives on a whole host of issues. They don't want those coalitions because they know that we might be able to form majorities. For a long time, I was working on surveillance issues, trying to prevent the, the federal government from spying on the American people. And they would go out of their way as a unit. Mm -hmm. Nancy Pelosi would team up with Paul Ryan or John Boehner and the President of the United States, whether it was uh, Obama or Trump, They'd all team up every time to stop us because they knew that we could put together a majority if they just let the process work out. Yeah, what it feels like often is that the goal of bipartisanship as it's commonly understood in the broader media is to obscure the fact that there are pluralities of Americans that agree about a whole host of issues. But the two-party system keeps people broken down into believing that there's about a 50-50 split on everything and that there cannot be compromise um, at all. And, and that is why I think these kinds of moments, these force the vote moments are so important because they thrust to the foreground all of these opportunities for coalitional politics, which as Americans, we are just not that familiar with because we have been so trapped in this, in this two-party system. Um, I, I, I want to ask you, when you do look at some of these issues. Front of mind for me is the fact that Nancy Pelosi has quietly killed, some say designed to kill, this um, bill that would have prevented Congress members from trading stocks, insider trading. This is, again, something that overwhelming America, uh, numbers of Americans agree about. Nobody thinks that Congress members should be becoming millionaires in office from trading on information that is uh, insider information. It gets killed. Nobody noticed. She basically doesn't have to bring any of these uh, bills to, to vote on the floor and can secret them away in this way. Given that there, there's this conversation going on right now, do you think that these 20 or so people who are, are, are being rebellious from the, Demo uh, the Republican Party should be foregrounding some of those populist concerns instead of focusing on some of these procedural, administrative, albeit important... Or almost personal concerns. Or, or these personal vendettas. <laughs> Seems like they don't like McCarthy involved. is what they're putting <laughs> yeah, left and center. Why, why not run on some of this? Why not foreground Ukraine? Why not foreground the, the extent to which there's corruption in Congress? Yeah, I, and I think this is a strategic mistake that a lot of people make when they talk about process. I talk about process all the time. But you have to tie the process to these substantive outcomes. Mm -hmm. So when you go and speak to a left-leaning audience, for example, talk to them about the issues they care about and how the process is stopping us from getting to those issues. It doesn't mean I'm going to agree with them on the issue. Mm -hmm. For example, I might have a whole host of disagreements with a town hall full of people from the left who are angry about one issue or another. But what I want to say to them is, look, I want your issue to be brought to the floor so we can all debate it. Yeah. We should at least mm -hmm. be able to discuss it. You're telling me you want this thing. I might disagree with you, but let's at least bring it to the floor. And what's happening is the leaders of these two parties are saying no. 
We don't want contentious things brought to the floor because that requires actual democracy, actual representative government, actual debate, actual amendments, actual discovery of the outcome. They don't want that. They want it all controlled. And at the end of the day, it's about their own power. They want to stay in power, and the way they stay in power is by, by maintaining their majority, if they are the speaker. And so they don't want any funny business. That's why they say no amendments on the House floor, because they know as soon as they allow a whole bunch of amendments on the House floor, people are taking tough votes, yeah. and that may get them in trouble. And that means that the person who's speaker, or who will be speaker, might not be speaker again. Yeah, better mm. to have a 4,000-page omnibus, omnibus bill that leadership on both parties, negotiates in private together and thrust on mm -hmm. people uh, days before a holiday. Yeah. yeah. Plausible deniability. Astonishing. Uh, well, former Representative Amash, thank you so much for peeling back the curtain a little bit. <laughs> Thanks so much. It was fun. Yeah. We'll have more rising right after this. A new lawsuit from the U.S. Virgin Islands Attorney General Denise George accuses J.P. Morgan Chase of facilitating Jeffrey Epstein's sex trafficking operation and covering it up, according to the lawsuit. The bank and its employees knew they were facilitating Epstein's sexual abuse and sex trafficking conspiracy to coerce young women and underage girls to engage in commercial sex acts, according to the accusations. According to Insider, the bank concealed its conduct by failing to follow red flag laws. In the section of the lawsuit that details how J.P. Morgan allegedly turned a blind eye to Epstein's conduct is heavily redacted. A representative from J.P. Morgan declined to comment to Insider on this matter. Insider writes, The Virgin Islands prosecutor Denise George lost her job days after suing J.P. Morgan in connection with the Jeffrey Epstein investigation, according to Law & Crime. George's office did not immediately respond to Law & Crime's request for comment sent yesterday. So this is a kind of a crazy story. The prosecutor in the U.S. Virgin Islands, where uh, Jeffrey Epstein's sex Island was located, filed suit making these um, allegations under, uh, I think, RICO law, and almost immediately is fired. As I've read, there has been no alternative explanation for why she was fired, and the timing is sort of incredible. Yeah, she's filing a lawsuit alleging a cover-up, and then she herself gets fired. You, so you would say, I mean, the reaction many people would have is that well, the cover-up is continuing. She is right. being punished for trying to reveal what is going on with J.P. Morgan Chase. Now, we don't really know much, many of the details here. Um, right, the other, the other side, you could argue, is maybe the governor of the Virgin Islands thought this lawsuit is totally has no merit, and she's just trying to make a name for herself or something, and it will be embarrassing, and so then he fires her for doing that, although he didn't say he was firing her for that reason. Right. He just said, like, thank you for your service. Right. You You're could done. offer an alternative explanation that would yeah. help to assuage people's feelings that there's something conspiratorial so, going on So here. what do you think is the, again, because it's, it's not clear yet, what do you think is the J.P. Morgan connection, that he's making payments to various people, or maybe he's paying off underage people or so, something, and, so lot, and that is something that J.P. Morgan should have taken notice of? So a lot of the court documents are redacted, which prevents us from knowing all of, of what there is to know. However, what we do know is that in the lawsuit that was filed, uh, the plaintiffs accused the banks of, quote, providing the requisite financial support for the continued operation of Epstein's international sex trafficking organization in violation of the Racketeer Influence and Corrupt Organizations Act, that's the RICO Act, um, a U.S. law used to target illegal conspiracies that was originally designed to target organized crimes. Now, RICO law has been used 
in ways that are gross overreaches uh, to get people who I would argue should not be overpoliced and criminalized. Uh, but it also has been the thing that has able, enabled law enforcement to get some genuine criminals that mm -hmm. otherwise are careful enough to avoid. It's also something kinds of charges. people who don't know anything about the law always say, oh, is that Rico? <laughs> Usually it's not. <laughs> Usually that is not Rico. Well, the, the lawsuit goes on to, to say that Epstein's sex trafficking venture was not possible without the assistance and complicity of a financial institution, specifically a banking institution, which provided his operation with an appearance of legitimacy and special treatment to the sex trafficking venture thereby ensuring its continued operation, et cetera, et cetera. So look, I think the implications here for the Virgin Islands are potentially significant. It is a place that is known to be a tax haven and a place that provides a lot of economic opportunities for folks who are trying to avoid certain regulatory restrictions in the United States and in other parts of the world, and gets a lot of revenue from being a haven of sorts. So it could be that there's a lot of political pressure on uh, this prosecutor, uh, George here, mm. not to open the door to oh, the Oh, I get of, it. Not to, okay, not to spook right. potential people who are going to put their assets or their right. banking For in whatever the reason, islands. including yes. potentially sex trafficking reasons. So, I mean, this is a big question. I mean, we saw this a little bit with the, the Kanye fiasco, the choice of J.P. Morgan to shut down his accounts, kind of self-politicizing, mm -hmm. inserting themselves, and being something other than a kind of neutral provider and carrier in that sort of a situation. And it is interesting to see whether or not, you know, are they going to, you know, continue to say, oh, I'm just neutral. I'm allowed to do whatever I want. It's not my business to get involved in people's affairs. Or is this a case where they had bigger responsibility not to continue to bank for someone. I mean, it, it, and it, it's got a, it's an odd comparison. Jeffrey Epstein had already been convicted of all kinds of sexual crimes previously in his life before his last imprisonment that resulted in his death. And banks were happy to continue banking with this known convicted sexual Although, I, We should read this statement from J.P. Morgan. They say, the, this is a statement from J.P. Morgan. They say the company ended its relationship with Epstein long before his ongoing misconduct became known. Since then, J.P. Morgan Chase has cooperated with investigations into Epstein and others. Do they mean the second Accusation and trial, or the first one know. from whatever it was, the late 90s. Right. Yeah. Well, it's, it's an interesting case. It will be interesting to see if there's actually any more substantive But there's a lot. I mean, there's so many institutions with tied to Harvard, right? Yeah, absolutely. Harvard, I know, had to investigate itself. A absolutely. I mean, Jeff Over Epstein was a high school teacher at, what was it, Dalton? A, a very tony uh, private school in New York City. I mean, people ha who have had reason to know about his proclivities have put him in positions of power and proximity to young women for decades. And it is shocking, frankly, how few heads have rolled over that outside of, you know, Jeffrey Epstein's own proverbial head. So look, we'll continue to follow this. And we'll have more rising right after this. Journalist David Zweig is the latest to participate in the Twitter files. Last week, he published how Twitter rigged the COVID debate by censoring information that was true but inconvenient to U.S. government policy by discrediting doctors and other experts who disagreed and by suppressing ordinary users, including some who are sharing the CDC's own data. Here to break down what he found out, journalist David Zweig. Wonderful to have you with us, David. Thanks for having me. All right, so what were the big headlines from your perusal of the Twitter files? What did you see that really caught your attention? 
Um, I think there, there were a few key things. Um, the first one is that there certainly was evidence of direct pressure from the White House in both the Trump administration, but much more so from the Biden administration on Twitter to get them to moderate um, specific content. Um, so the first thing is government involvement or sort of government pressure. And then the larger part of my reporting that I found fascinating and that, that I was curious about that really prompted me to want to go to San Francisco was to get a little bit better understanding of what goes on sort of behind the scenes at Twitter. Um, these social media platforms that hundreds of millions of us use, it's very, very opaque about how the algorithms work and what the process is. So I really wanted to uncover a little bit the process by which you know they decide which things get flagged as misleading and which things don't. So let's talk about that process a little bit. Um, you wrote that part of the issue is that so much of the content moderation was being done by bots who were insufficiently nuanced to actually capture what even the intention was by the people at Twitter. And at other points, you, you talk about content moderation decisions uh, that were made kind of contrary to Twitter's own policy. Can you unpack that a little bit? Yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty fascinating. Um, I think a lot of us hear the word algorithm or bots. It's not really entirely clear what that means. I spent a long time talking with an engineer at Twitter, as well as another executive, trying to just a little, get a little bit better understanding of what that stuff means. And basically, when we talk about bots, it's they, they essentially train, the, the, the employees will train the, the software, the system, through machine learning and through AI, they feed it you know, a handful of tweets or key terms or other things like that. And then the more the, the sort of bots crawl across um, the, the network, the more they train themselves about what to look for. And then periodically over time, humans will actually give it more, feeding it more inputs to help sort of refine what the bots are looking for. So that's kind of the very basic sketch about how these bots work, but we have to understand it always comes back to the humans who are actually deciding what the inputs are for the bots to look for. When we were talking about the Twitter files in the context of the FBI and, and the Hunter Biden laptop and election stuff, um, I, I, what we saw, I think at first at least, was a lot of resistance on Twitter's part to be overly compliant with the government, and then that kind of resistance being eroded gradually when when the go government employees keep coming back to them over and over again, and and really, you know, not threatening, using very careful language, but uh, but pushing them more and more toward uh, toward a compliance mindset. Um, did you see a similar thing happening um, here from the White House and the CDC perspective with respect to COVID? Well, what we do know is from an internal email that I found from, um, from an executive at Twitter, Lauren Culbertson, where she characterized um, the multiple meetings from the Biden White House, and she characterized the, the tone of the White House staff members being, quote, very angry with Twitter, that they were not being more compliant with um, the White House's, you know, wishes or, you know, or demands, as it were, um, that they really, really wanted them to be much more aggressive with deplatforming what they, whoever they deemed were, quote, anti-vaxxers or information that they deemed to be um, insufficiently in, in accordance with um, the sort of White House and CDC guidelines. 
Yeah, I, I want to be specific about the kind of tweets that we're talking about being censored here. You mentioned one in particular um, by Martin uh, Kuldroff, who tweeted out uh, that basically thinking that everyone must be vaccinated is scientifically flawed thinking, uh, as, as is the thinking that nobody should be vaccinated. Vaccines are more important for older high-risk people and their caretakers. Those with natural prior infection do not need it, nor children. And this is something that is obviously much more discussed today as we have learned more, perhaps people already knew more, um, about uh, the failures of the vaccines to prevent transmission the way that we thought they might before. So the argument in the earlier days was, even though we do know that kids are relatively at low risk, that older people and people who are immunocompromised and have other comorbidities are at higher risk, they could still pass it along to people with higher risk, and therefore everybody should get vaccinated uh, regardless of their own personal risk. Um, you know, I wonder what you make having looked through the decision-making kind of behind, behind the door. Do you have a feeling that those kind of statements were suppressed because they believed them sincerely to be false or because there was this broader project of just wanting to get as many people vaccinated as possible so that the economy could keep going, so that stores could reopen? Because you also mentioned earlier in your thread that there was this censoring of information that might lead to panic buying. And that reminds me of the run on the masks, the concern that there would be a run on a mask and people lying the early days where they were lying to the public about the efficacy of masks, in part because they wanted to preserve them for uh, medical professionals. Yeah, um, good, good questions. You know, it, it's hard to know precisely um, the, the motivations, you know, of course, uh, of the individual employees. All we do know is the sort of broader policies that were in place. And I gave, I mean, there were many, many more examples that I had that, that I didn't include in my Twitter thread or in my larger piece that I wrote for the Free Press, because, you know, there's only so many uh, examples to give. But, but what I tried to show through a series of examples like the Kaldorf tweet that you mentioned is that we had incidences where there were highly credentialed professionals like Martin Kaldorf, you know, a Harvard professor and others, or even regular users who were either A, just simply giving their opinion, which, which is valid to give someone's opinion. It wasn't false. It was merely uh, Dr. Kaldorf's opinion, or they were actually quoting real data from uh, peer-reviewed journals or even data from the CDC itself. And these tweets were nevertheless being suppressed in one way or another. Either they were labeled as misleading, um, at times the tweets or the accounts themselves were suspended because of this material. So that's kind of the broader um, thing that rather than conjecturing too much about the, the sort of motives or the why other than seeing evidence of the White House pressure, what we do know is, is to actually look at the, the evidence we have before us. And we can see over and over again that tweets that were really of genuine substantive material, like, as I said, something from a peer-reviewed journal that nevertheless were um, flagged by the bots and then ultimately by humans at Twitter itself. And I think that's the kind of broader pattern that we saw. And, you know, it, obviously for, for any citizen, this raises a lot of questions about, you know, how social media fun, uh, platforms should function and, you know, content moderation and what is, where, where do they draw the line? Um, and, and, I don't know and, the answers to those questions, but um, yeah. I wanted to at least present information for people to see.
And you, you point out, um, you know, Trump had tweeted something about, uh, say, don't be afraid of COVID, don't let it dominate your life. That was on October 5th. 2020, and, and you say that prompted a lot of internal discussion about whether that was misleading information. And then, and then actually, Jim Baker, who's this Twitter, former FBI figure at Twitter, we've criticized uh, previously and was, was fired by Elon Musk. But then when Biden had a, had a, you know, don't be afraid of COVID tweet, so he flagged that then for Yul Roth and was like, well, are we going to have a whole debate over this one then? Which I think really highlights the, the degree to which this policy became absurd when you're sort of like trying to moderate people's sort of optimistic feelings, right? <laughs> Yeah, it, it was when I that was one of the one of the you know, I mean, I combed through thousands of emails internally. And this was one of the ones that just I, th I think I described it as surreal um, that you had a Trump tweet where he said, like, hey, everybody, like, don't be afraid of covid. I think he had just um, gotten out of a hospital or something. And Jim Baker, the you know, the deputy, uh, I believe his title was deputy uh, counsel, you know, that's sort of one of the, the lead attorney at Twitter was is part of this broader big internal discussion about whether the tweet should be taken down or labeled misleading was saying, hey, doesn't this violate our policy? And Yoel Roth had to respond to him, look, I'm sorry, but optimism is not misinformation. Um, so it was just, you know, that's when you realize things have gone completely off the rails when, you know, high level executives in internal discussions in a very, you know, sincere way are questioning whether a statement of optimism is considered misinformation. That, that's a problem. David, I want to ask you about some of the pushback that you've gotten. People have pointed to some of your ideological priors, saying that you're supportive of the Great Barrington Declaration or being generally kind of ideologically aligned with some of the tweets that have been censored, uh, you know, biases your review of the documents and internal files. And I wonder what, what you make of that criticism and if you think that some of the reception of the um, reporting coming out of the Twitter files would be better and better perceived among people who don't share those ideological priors if there was some um, diversity in the folks who've been chosen to look through these files. So if someone like both yourself and someone who has been um, more, let's say, in line with the CDC recommendations or the um, censorship choices that have been made were also being confronted with doing the same process alongside you. Yeah, it's a really good question. I would say, first off, Every journalist, every human has their own biases and their own lens through which they see the world and any, you know, long list of topics. So the notion that people who were, quote, contrarian um, had more of a bias or like were more affected by their lens through which they see the world than other people is silly. Um, the journalists at, you know, all sorts of legacy and mainstream media outlets had their own bias that pushed things. So that's one thing to, to set aside. I don't think there's one sort of perfect objective um, journalist or lens through which anything can be seen. Um, but secondarily, what's interesting is in one of the um, tweets that I showed was, was a response to a user who had tweeted out um, um, a screenshot of CDC data itself, and the tweet got flagged as, quote, misinformation. It was about um, this person named Kelly. She was showing that, um, contrary to what someone else has said, that COVID has never been the leading cause of death for children. And when she got into an exchange with an employee at Twitter, the person ultimately said to her, look, it's our policy to specifically look and go after content that may possibly lead to increased transmission. 
um, or something of that nature. So I think that's a really important window into the sort of broader mindset and approach of Twitter, um, which I think gets to your question, which is that, the, and, and lots and lots of people, me among them, noticed this anecdotally for years, that the most outlandish claims, people from this person named Eric Feigelding, just these most hyperbolic, fear-mongering craziness were never flagged. Um, but yet time and time again, you'd see something, even if it's quoting CDC data itself, um, those were labeled as misleading. So we saw this anecdotally, but this exchange, um, this correspondence that um, this person had with the Twitter staff member really helped illuminate why we anecdotally we had seen this, which is that they always seemed to side with more aggressive um, moderation approach against anything that would seem to go against the CDC's um, guidelines and approach or anything that would sort of lean toward being less aggressive with mitigations. And that, so that sort of was the official policy. So I appreciate if people thought that, you know, I'm picking and choosing things, but the things that I chose aligned with, they exemplified what was the official policy at Twitter. Hmm. Yeah, I have no, I mean, there's no reason to necessarily doubt that, except for that, the lack of transparency, you know, these documents not being made widely available is, of course, going to lead people to bring skepticism to them. And, you know, it, it does seem to be the case that if you want a broader audience to take these kinds of, this kind of reporting seriously, that it wouldn't necessarily hurt to have different ideological sets of eyes on it. Because as you, as you point out, everybody has their biases. And the only way to seem, it seems to me to get around that is to have the kind of idea, ideological diversity that we have here on this panel. But I, we appreciate you joining us today, David. Thanks for having me. We'll have more rising for you after this. Idaho murder suspect 28-year-old Brian Koberger was identified with the help of a direct-to-consumer genetics test like that of 23andMe, if not that company specifically. This method, genetic genealogy, has become a popular technique among law enforcement. You, you may remember it being used to catch the Golden State Killer, where investigators ran DNA and found that was had been found at a crime scene and used it to match with familial DNA found through these genetic tests. And while many applaud the suspect's capture, of course, data privacy experts are raising red flags. Podcaster Clint Russell points out this sentiment, tweeting, Idaho mass murderer got caught because his parents had done 23andMe-style DNA tests. They then matched that to evidence at the scene. Glad he's caught, very, very disturbed that the government can use that data, and no one seems to care. Yeah, so this is very interesting. Uh, I, I, so I've heard, I'm seeing on social media some talk that it was 23andMe. We don't know if it's that company or something else. But what it sounds like is uh, not actually the suspect, Koberger, but maybe a family member, someone, used a service like 23andMe to compile their genetic profile. And then some DNA found at the crime scene, it could, it could have been a, a, a hair, a piece of hair, something else, piece of skin. Uh, they had that, and then they wouldn't know who that was because Brian Koberger isn't in the criminal database. But they could find, they because they have access, I guess, to some of these uh, genetic testing companies' databases, so they're able to narrow it down to say, okay, well, look at everyone in that family, and they see, oh, actually, there's a member of that family or someone yeah. with a genetic similarity who lives in that area, and, oh, they had been seen in the same location or something, so then it they, goes from they there. They drive the white sedan. Yeah. Right. It, look, some people might say, if you haven't done anything wrong, what's the problem? Yeah. But I don't know. I, 
I had to watch Gattaca in my eighth grade science class. I have not seen Gattaca. Okay, well, <laughs> to update you on this 20-year-old movie, Robbie, I mean, the point is that, you know, it's in a future society where the fact of your DNA being on file is used to prevent you from going certain places, yeah. having certain kinds of jobs. It's a yeah. world where a lot of people are genetically modified, and people who have those genetic modifications get more privileges than people who have their regular normie DNA. And obviously, we're not in Gattaca. We're nowhere close to that um, reality. But the fact that DNA and biometrics are in, in, in increasingly taken from us. We give up our eye scan at the airport. We, we do a finger pad to sign into the gym in our buildings, these kinds of things. This stuff is on file. And the day that we do take a dystopian turn, which seems likely, especially as we cover these stories about Amazon ring ca cameras and those mm -hmm. kinds of things, the way they're going to get us is by offering us convenience. They're going to say, Give us your information freely. We'll tell you about your genealogy. We'll help tell you if a package has been stolen, et cetera. And it's going to be whiplash when we realize exactly what we've given up in terms of privacy and our, our rights to not be on the grid. I think it's concerning. I also think it's, frankly, inevitable. And there's not a lot we can do to prevent it. Um, well, what do you think about what they've done in Europe with respect to trying to do more to protect privacy rights? The right, right to be forgotten on the internet is something that they've worked to establish yeah. in Europe. Yeah, you know, I've, I think I've said this before on the show. Uh, in the in the speech privacy trade-off, we go a little harder on protections for speech, and they go a little harder on protections for privacy. You couldn't have something like the uh, right to be forgotten law in the U.S., frankly, because it would violate the First Amendment. You couldn't. The First Amendment would. Uh, the Supreme Court would say that. Their interpretation of the First Amendment is that the government can't obligate a company to, to get rid of a, a, a media company to get rid of speech or information about someone um, even just because they want to. I'm not saying that's good or bad. It's it's just kind of the, the reality here, which is why I talk about the inevitability of it. I, you know, I, I do think privacy is a very important value, and it would be I, I actually I think some of the just about the only laws I actually. Um, uh, a favor to maybe modify exactly what the regulations we have with regard to the internet are have to do with um, increasing privacy around photos and information that can end up in other people's uh, I actually think there should be more obligation on tech companies to take down content that is posted by a third party yeah. that's yours, and they should There's not. Revenge and right now, they'll say we, yeah, there are yeah, these, those. These I, I do think are are pretty. And we compelling. can make choices. The First Amendment yeah. exists. We also can make choices as a society about exceptions yeah. to it, limitations to it, as we decide as a society. It's not a tablet that's come down from yeah. God, you know, and there are a lot of things that exist now that didn't exist when the founding fathers were thinking this stuff up. I think it's worth having a conversation as a, as a society about whether we want to have this kind of more absolutist position that we're in. We have carved out various privacy rights outside of the constitutional context in Supreme Court jurisprudence. This recent decision in Dobbs was a big blow to one of the privacy rights that's been established by the courts. Um, you know, a lot of these uh, marriage equality, interracial marriage, mm -hmm. a lot of these other kind of cases, uh, the, uh, the right to contraceptive, to not having the police bang down your door and look to see if you're, you're using a condom that's been outlawed in a state or doing a sodomy that's outlawed in the state. We're all based on someone's right to privacy. So we have decided 
outside of the Constitution that that step is important. The question is, are we going to be ahead of the ball and getting some legislation on the books that protects us before it's You know, that reminds me of, uh, and and perhaps we should discuss this in in greater detail for its own segment, but Louisiana has a new law uh, aimed at restricting uh, adolescents' access to pornography. Have Mm. you heard about this? Oh, you have to put in your your driver's license? license. You're going to have to put in a driver's license to prove you're of an age to be allowed to consume pornography. And this, you know, this is a law being celebrated by social conservatives being foisted on us by Republicans. I don't know. That sounds that sounds concerning. You want to you want to type in your driver's license, give that to every yeah. website on the planet. It's not giving freedom, Republicans. It's not it's not serving freedom. <laughs> well, the Federalist Avita Duffy Alfonso writes that during the early years of social media, no one could have predicted the kinds of power big tech companies would wield over freedom of expression. Nor could we have imagined the sinister collusion between federal agencies and social media companies to silence political enemies of the left, engage in government psychological operations, and interfere in elections just as social media sites have been, DNA profiling will likely be abused in ways we are not yet aware of. Uh, and then there will be cooperation. That's the other yeah. thing. That's what we're really seeing and, yeah. and it is alluded to there. The, the begrudging at first, resistance, then begrudging cooperation, then full cooperation that we've seen from Twitter as a result of these Twitter files. Yeah. Same thing that could happen with 23andMe. It's worth noting also that the lack of transparency means that a lot of these technologies are proven over time to not actually even do the thing that law enforcement says that they do. So, for example, cell tower information has been used to convict any number of people putting, uh, you know, alleged perpetrators in the scene of the crime. But over the years, we've realized that that information is really inconsistent, especially in cities that are so densely populated. You have, like, thousands and millions of people in a square block radius. And to juries, you see some science. You see an expert saying, oh, there was a cell phone that pinged in this area. Let's lock them up for good. But who knows what's going on? Who knows how legitimate the the DNA collections are in these cases? How much, you know, there were were some cases of some of these um, uh, DNA testing companies for dogs, you know, to see if you actually got a pure breed or not, just wantonly sending whatever result in the world back. I think my Yorkies are part Maltese. (laughs) Look, how could you even okay, really know. ever know? Like this is this is the thing. So we should be also not so credulous mm. about the efficacy of this technology in the first place. Well, I promise to be an informed juror if I am picked. <laughs> in jury duty, I don't expect to be, and we'll do everything I can to get out you of it so that I can picked, be. Robbie. What I really want to do is get back to work on the All following right. Monday. So I'm going to try to get out of it. All right. But, well, uh, we'll miss you either way, but we respect your civil responsibilities <laughs> as well. <laughs> More rising after this. Stay with us. Brianna, what's on your radar? Well, Batya, AOC made an interesting admission this week. While doing the media rounds about the Republican struggle to nominate a Speaker of the House, she made an explicit reference to the Washington coercion machine that is mostly only alluded to. Take a listen. I do think that in terms of some of those conversations, I mean, listen, some of us in the House of Representatives uh, are independent in certain ways from our party. And I do believe that uh, in some of those conversations, um, there are things that are happening on the floor. These machinations are happening on the floor. And sometimes the leadership of your party, uh, in this case, the Republican Party, will be making claims uh, in order to try to twist arms and get people in line. Did you hear that? This clip has been circulating since Tuesday, and I didn't even catch it the first time I saw it. 
But here, AOC makes explicit reference to herself as, quote, independent in certain ways from the Democratic Party, and that as a result, quote, sometimes the leadership of your party will be making claims in order to try to twist arms and get people in line. Now, AOC was clearly making reference there to the Republican holdouts who are being whipped like a French meringue into backing McCarthy as Speaker of the House. But AOC is also revealing more than she might have intended about her own personal experiences with Democrats. As I explained in detail yesterday, many on the left wanted progressive Democrats in the House to deploy the same force-the-vote maneuver rebel rebellions are now using to, den to deny Pelosi the gavel back in 2021. But they didn't. AOC, in particular, offered a range of excuses for her inaction at the time, excuses which have only grown more stale over the years. She claimed she needed to reserve political capital for the fight for 15, which failed, and to secure committee positions, which they did not get. In fact, by failing to show they meant business, it seems obvious now, in retrospect, that progressives taught establishment Democrats that they could be walked over and demeaned with impunity. And that's exactly what we've seen during the Biden administration. For example, Biden began his term by immediately walking back his commitment to a $15 minimum wage. And look, if you think I'm being unfair in that it's really Republicans, Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin that are to blame, Recall that despite assurances from veteran Congress members that the minimum wage did satisfy the requirements of budget reconciliation and could be passed as part of the American Rescue Plan with only 51 votes, Joe Biden started signaling as early as February of 2021 that he thought his parliamentarian would decide the matter differently. And lo and behold, she did. Even though the parliamentarian's advice has no binding authority and past presidents have fired parliamentarians who did not advise in accordance with their policy priorities, Biden's administration seemingly jumped at the opportunity to scrap the wage raise. Chuck Schumer stripped it from the American Rescue Plan. Bernie tried to get it back in, but doing so took 60 votes, not 51. And, you know, we all remember how that went down. Ms. Cinema, Ms. Cinema, <laughs> no. But let's not forget, some progressives considered holding out, withholding their votes for the American Rescue Plan entirely as a form of leverage to force establishment Democrats to finally raise the wages for America's worst paid workers. Wages that, by the way, haven't been raised since 2009. But as Time reported, House Progressive Caucus leader Pramila Jayapal talked them out of it. Quote, progressives have been sort of pushed to the margin so often in politics that I think we may have gotten used to that, Jayapal explained. And so people are very inclined to say, oh, this happened again. We didn't get everything we wanted. But she taught her colleagues to realize we should take the win. We should take the win. Did progressives have to have their arms twisted to get them in line there? Or was Jayapal able to get by with a somewhat softer touch? Five months later, Pelosi demonstrated unambiguously aggressive coercion techniques, techniques that left AOC crying on the House floor. It happened after AOC voted against funding Israel's Iron Dome missile defense system on the grounds that Israel stood accused of human rights abuses and war crimes against Palestinians. But in stunning C-SPAN footage, you can see Nancy Pelosi in pink engage hey. AOC in a spirited conversation. When the vote was retaken... After that conversation, AOC had switched her vote from no to present. You can see her appearing to wipe tears away in this clip of her being comforted by Barbara Lee. Hey. 
on, on House Resolution 483 amendments. He votes nay. No one knows exactly what Pelosi said to ARC or how she twisted her arm to get her in line, but something certainly happened here. And I'm guessing the tools Pelosi used were more stick than proverbial carrot. When asked to explain her tears, AOC wrote, yes, I wept. I wept at the complete lack of care for the human beings that are impacted by these decisions. I wept at an institution choosing a path of maximum volatility and maximum consideration for its own political convenience. And I wept at the complete lack of regard I often feel our party has for its most vulnerable and endangered members and communities. Sure. But at the end of the day, she fell in line. And she never revealed what Pelosi said to her, in effect, protecting Pelosi from having to be judged for whatever threat made the young Congress member cry. And that's a choice in and of itself. Later that year, progressives were steamrolled again when another piece of must-pass legislation, the Build Back Better bill, was bifurcated with all of the social safety net parts of the bill that progressives wanted in one half and all of the establishment-friendly infrastructure projects in the other. There was no reason to do this, of course, other than to damn the human infrastructure projects and strip progressives of their leverage. But once again, Pelosi and Jayapal were on the scene whipping progressives into submission. For a while, progressives claimed they would hold the line and not vote on the traditional infrastructure bill without the human infrastructure bill. But in a move that surprised absolutely no one, Manchin killed the human infrastructure bill. Quote, we have been saying this for weeks, that this would happen, Representative Cory Bush told MSNBC. Having coupled together the two bills was the only leverage we had. And what did the caucus do? We tossed it. Well, I feel sorry for Bush if it weren't all so predictable. It was clear to many of us on the left that the last moment of real leverage the progressives had was the force the vote moment, during which they held Nancy Pelosi's gavel in their hands. Having not acted on that threat, they spent the next two years being dismissed and bullied like the powerless empty suits they had become. Power, after all, concedes nothing without demand. And from the start of Biden's administration, the progressives made it clear that they would not be demanding anything at all. The disrespect progressives have suffered as a result is incredible. APAC and its allied pro-Israel fund, DMFI, worked overtime to fund corporate candidates to run against progressives. And the Progressive Caucus, not just the Democratic Party as a whole, but the Progressive Caucus, led by Pramila Jayapal, endorsed those DMFI candidates against frontrunners like Nina Turner in Ohio. Keep in mind that Jayapal and Turner worked together on the Bernie campaign. What a betrayal. Whereas once the Democratic Party prioritized protecting all of its members, saying it would blackball vendors who worked for insurgent candidates that dared to challenge Democratic incumbents, once progressives became those incumbents, the rules seemed to change. Now the litmus test for party protection is no longer, are you the front runner in an open contest or are you the incumbent, but are you the right kind of Democrat? Hakeem Jeffries has a pattern of backing establishment opponents to progressives in primary contests, and even started a PAC with conservative representative Josh Gottheimer to protect incumbent Democrats from primary challenges from their left. Jeffries actually stumped for Nina Turner's opponent, Chantel Brown, on the campaign trail, and he has been openly hostile to progressives for his entire career. But despite all of this, 
Progressives, powerless progressives, are clapping, tweeting, giggling, and eating popcorn enthusiastically as they vote again and again for Hakeem Jeffries during the House Speaker proceedings, with no sense of irony whatsoever. Congressman Bowman tweeted, McCarthy must be red as a tomato right now from the embarrassment of getting fewer votes than Jeffries. But aren't you, Congressman, a progressive, embarrassed to be uncritically supportive of a man who has worked so assiduously to undermine your colleagues or prospective colleagues in the progressive caucus? Instead of selfies, shouldn't this be a moment for stolid self-reflection over how you ended up a mere spectator for a power struggle waged by much less principled people than you, but which could result in more power than you've ever leveraged in Congress. As one journalist put it on Twitter, it's rather pathetic to watch Democrats and leftists gloating about the fact that the Republican Party seems to still allow for a tiny amount of dissent and debate, while their own party is an absolute authoritarian borg that demands lockstep allegiance from its members. Indeed. Now, there is some glimmer of hope. AOC, at least, seems to realize that there are leverage opportunities for progressives in this moment. As the vote stretches on and things become more dire for McCarthy, it's likely that the conversation will shift to one about an alternative unity candidate, one AOC says she might vote for if she gets some concessions, like committee seats. Now, this is smart, but it bears noting that this is literally the power that progressive media figures like myself were begging progressive electives to understand they had back in 2021, back when Democrats held both chambers and the White House. AOC is poised to bargain for committee seats, maybe more. But imagine what progressives could have gotten if they were the ones dominating a news cycle for days or weeks, demanding popular benefits for the American people. What if it was them and not Lauren Boebert demanding the country's attention? What could they have achieved? Well, we can only imagine. Pati, this is obviously Brianna, <laughs> a stick in my craw. Wow. <laughs> that was incredible. I mean, uh, you just brought so much to the table that I, I never would have thought about it that way. I was all prepared to defend AOC, and then you brought up the Iron Dome vote, and I remembered like how dispiriting it was. Like. Either vote against it, have, you know, have your your beliefs, ha stand up for your principles, insist that we should have a more robust debate about funding the Iron Dome and funding to Israel, which we should, right, and stand for that, or, you know, cave, stand against it and take responsibility for your decision. Instead, she voted present and then burst into tears demanding sympathy. It was so, uh, it was just really, really appalling, I think. Um, I, I will say, all right, so he here's sort of where I think the defense of the kind of establishment move would come come from. Um, um, look, we live in a country that is very robust in the debates that regular Americans are having. Um, we're, we're, we're divided between, you know, Democrats, Republicans, people who are socially conservative, economically protectionist. And then, you know, as I always like to joke to Robbie, about 3% of Americans are libertarian. <laughs> um, but, you know, when you, when you have a situation like that, that's so divided. I think that's a good thing, right? That That's democracy. Uh, you know, people in swing districts, people who can appeal to independents are always going to be more important. And, and, and I don't mean that from a values point of view. I just mean that simply from a numbers point of view. The, They're the going squeaky to have wheel gets the grease. 
Exactly, because, you know, Nancy Pelosi once meanly, very meanly said about AOC's district that I think she said a glass of water could win that, you know, Democrat could win that <laughs> district, right? Really, really mean, but also, you know, like, it's like not 100% inaccurate, right? So, and I think from that point of view, um, the move here, which I'm sure you don't agree with me about this, but I think the move, what AOC just, the, her final move of saying, hey, why not think about realignment possibilities here? Why not think about, you know, who we can think think about on the other side who might want to partner with us through the establishment, right? Circumvent establishment Democrats and get to those populist Republicans maybe, right? Get seats, you know, in that sense. I think that's a real power move. And I think somebody like um, Representative Rokana, who we're going to speak to today, um, really seems to me to be making strides in that way. And I think that there's just so much you can accomplish. Like, I'll never forget when Bernie Sanders and Josh Hawley together demanded a second round of stimulus checks for Americans. It was mm. a real power move. The two of them getting up there, the representatives of, of populism on both sides and saying, look, Americans are still hurting. They're still suffering. I think there's a lot of common ground there. Yeah, I certainly can appreciate what the establishment Democrats' motives are. Uh, and I can appreciate why it is that someone like AOC would even stay mum on the ways that she's being pressured and coerced behind the scenes if she was, in fact, getting substantive things in exchange for it. But I think what we've observed over the course of the past year, that while that was thrown out there as the excuse for why AOC wasn't uh, taking the same adversarial approach that she and the rest of the squad members said they would take, and which was the whole reason for them being elected in the first place, uh, that nothing has really come of it. And so now the question is, at what point do these squad members stop staying silent about the ways they've been pressured behind the scenes, stop being silent about the way they've been coerced, and have the kind of open debate that is now happening in the Republican Party on the House floor. You can say that that's embarrassing, but I think a lot of people are craving that level of energy and democracy and transparency that is happening. The problem with what Republicans are doing is that they're arguing over things that I don't think are as substantive or as, or as core to what uh, actual working Americans are prioritizing right now. But if the shoe were on the other foot, there's no reason that the progressives couldn't be using an opportunity like this to really push their message home and get the American public to side with them over Nancy Pelosi, who was clearly twisting arms in private and causing a lot of stress and chaos among progressives in the, in the party. So we'll see if this is a tipping point of sorts. I'm skeptical because it's been a long time of them keeping their head down, but we'll continue to watch this. Yes, we will. And we will have more rising right after this. The first cable news ratings of the year are out on Monday, January 2nd. Fox News came out on top, garnering 1.3 million total daily views. That is three times the number of views competitor network CNN got. Just over half a million turned in to CNN, while MSNBC came in second with 913,000 total views. CNN's new CEO, Chris Licht, has turned the network upside down since taking over last year, axing staff, making changes to lineups, shuffling hosts around, all in an effort to boost its ratings and views, apparently unsuccessfully. Um, you know, Brianna, I am not one of these who I, I likes to sort of dance on the, I, I think that a lot of the commentary around this is uh, like needlessly jubilant. I, mm. I think it's really sad um, that they're struggling to 
be um, a respected, trusted news source. Um, but you know, I I don't I don't I I wish them well with it. And I think that you know there was a need for some sort of reshuffling. And I remain hopeful that you know Licht will find some way to turn the ship around. I think that the the key to it is something that they're still missing, which is what we do here, which is robust debate. People want to see debate. They want to hear the other side. They want to see people engaging with people they disagree with. They want to see that. I mean, that, I think that that is really the thing that I would say watching a lot of CNN, as one does, um, you know, and something that actually Fox has much more of. They have a lot of panels throughout the day where they feature Democrats and liberals. Um, so I, I think that that really, to me, is um, where, you know, The Five, which is an extremely popular show on Fox, um, they always have a seated Democrat. And, mm-hmm. you know, that Democrat often loses against four Republicans or conservatives. But, you know, you get to hear the other side. And I think that is so key. What do you think, Brianna? Yeah, I think that's a great point, you know, to the extent that the mainstream liberal shows do have ideological diversity, do have a Republican sitting there. It is always a never-Trump Republican who, frankly, yeah. doesn't really reflect the ideology of the overall majority of conservatives in the country. It's, it's a safe Republican who is, frankly, you know, liberal in a kind of traditional classical sense and has the exact same opinions on everything as the establishment Dems who are hired to work at those kinds of channels. I mean, it is entirely true that, you know, and I, I say this with all, you know, all due respect, if you look at some of these shows, if you look at The View, et cetera, they're much more likely to hire someone who, you know, worked in the Trump campaign than someone who worked in the Bernie campaign. <laughs> they're much more likely to have someone who has been critical of Trump, despite being, you know, close to them in the past, than someone who has been critical of Joe Biden. And that really, I think, speaks to the fact that this is an establishment, anti-establishment issue, and these mainstream news networks have not gotten the lesson that they need to have more anti-establishment voices. So I agree with you that some of the kind of dancing on the grave of media institutions is distasteful. A part of me, a part of my sympathy is diminished by the fact that these lessons have been out there for a long time. The writing has been on the wall for the for a long time. Yeah. And for some reason, and I don't think it's a financial reason because the finances are not good under the plan that they're currently operating under. But I, it seems an ideological reason. They absolutely refuse to have outsiders on these networks and it's really hurting them. And they could choose, they could choose to change that at any time. Yeah, and I will just say, I don't know that you'll agree with me about this, but, um, you know, CNN back in 2012, it had the same percentage of working class viewers as Fox did, actually. 25% mm-hmm. of its viewers had a college degree, which is the same for, was the same for Fox in 2012. Fast forward to 2019, and 25% of Fox viewers have a college degree. And it back in 2019, it was something like 45% of CNN viewers at this point had a college degree, meaning over that 10-year span they managed to lose their working class liberal audience, many of whom did defect to Fox. We know that Tucker Carlson is the most viewed show, not just among Republicans, but also among Democrats. And some people say, oh, they're hate watching. I don't think people sit around and hate watch an hour long show at night when they're tired. I think a lot of liberal working class people, many people tell me this, they watch Tucker Carlson because he has that class point of view. And so the question is, how did CNN squander that viewership? And, you know, I, I, I'm sure you don't like this word, and I don't know what you'll think of this analysis, but to me, it seems pretty clear that um, it was it was a woke perspective that started to dominate a very 
college-educated view of gender and race and other things that sort of pushed out economic concerns in order to focus on concerns that, um, you know, make leftists feel like heroes without asking them for any kind of economic sacrifice. And and I'll just make one more point, which is that, um, you know, the demonization, not just of Trump, but of the Trump voter, um, and I, I think you would agree with me about yeah. this, it was it, it was really it, it wasn't just, um, you know, that they deserve to to be bankrupted for that. It was immoral and it hurt our country because those are our fellow Americans and they weren't voting for Trump out of some sort of hatred. They were voting for him because they had been abandoned by both parties with this sort of neoliberal consensus embodied by NAFTA and things like that. Um, uh, both parties, put, you know, obviously NAFTA was Democrats and, and then, you know, the free markets, uh, you know, free market p- perspective on both sides. And I think that that demonization was really I mean, if there's one thing that, I, you know, we should all be fighting, it's demonization of people on the other side, whether it's by saying that they're racist because they voted for Trump or that they're groomers because they think everybody should live in dignity. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you there. I, I wouldn't use the word woke just because I think that so many things that are substantive and frankly very class-related are subsumed under the wokeness label, you know, mm-hmm. to the extent that various groups have been historically denied um, economic privilege because of their identity. Yes. It's important yeah. to address those kinds of things. Um, but I, I do think that what has happened is the priorities, the topic priorities of people in the liberal media sphere and academic sphere and more and broadly are the kinds of identity-based concerns that concern elites. So while there are these important overlaps between identity, racial identity, uh, and class identity, and also things like rural identity and class identity, what's been happening with um, low-income white people in this country is another kind of, I'd say, identity class issue that deserves to be talked about, along with a lot of these other historically marginalized identity groups. They don't talk about that stuff. What they yeah. talk about is the kind of identity concerns that, that um, you know, concern elites, Per, per, people in in, in um, the upper echelon of our society. So, did Oprah get discriminated against for uh, when she tried to buy a forty thousand dollar handbag? Did some celebrity get pulled over by a cop, et cetera, et cetera? And and it's not that those things should happen. I don't think that Oprah should be discriminated right. against. But at a certain point, the kinds of topics that they talk about seem so out of touch when people yeah. are struggling. People of all backgrounds are struggling in so in so many material ways. So, I think you're I think you're completely right there. And um, shout out to your amazing book in which you uh, really rally a lot of those statistics you were citing about the shift in the demographic trends in media uh, over the course of the last, you know, a couple hundred years of, of American media. That's really kind of you. Thank you, Brianna. Yeah, please. Strong, strong recommend if, if listeners <laughs> haven't read it already. Batya, thank you so much for being here with me today. Uh, and we'll see. Oh, what a pleasure. Yeah, it's, it's nice to have a little... Um, can I say girl power? Is that too identity? Identity-based for me to say I like this energy here today. Uh, but Robbie will be back, and we'll see you next week with uh, on Monday. Me, uh, Robbie, on Tuesday, as always. Make sure to tune in tomorrow for the rest, uh, the best, rather, of Rising. And don't forget to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. For those of you who like to listen while on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. And we're also on Roku and other streaming services. So there is no excuse whatsoever for you not to tune in. Good morning. Welcome to Rising. We have another fantastic Wednesday show planned for you today. 
Brianna, what are we getting into? Well, we'll of course be digging into all of the House Speaker chaos as the Kevin McCarthy uh, kerfuffle embarrassingly fails to whip votes for the speakership multiple times last night. Joining us to get into all of it will be former Representative Justin Amash. You won't want to miss that interview. But first, journalist Matt Taibbi dropped a new round of the Twitter files yesterday afternoon. Got a little lost in the fray, perhaps. He reports that once Twitter began, quote, rolling over for Congress in 2017, the ending was inevitable, a former surrender to the intelligence community on content moderation. Now, after facing growing public pressure from Democratic politicians to address alleged Russian bots on the platform, in 2017, Twitter executives created a Russia task force, which showed of the 2,500 full manual account reviews, 32 suspicious accounts were identified, and only 17 of those were in any way connected to Russia, and they weren't even sure they were part of the Russian government misinformation campaign. Even as Twitter prepared to change its ad policy and remove those accounts, which included RT and Sputnik, to... Uh, to appease members of Congress, members of the Senate Intelligence Committee turned the heat up even more, reportedly leaking the larger base list of 2,700 accounts, along with other information to the mainstream media. Later in 2020, the State Department would do the same by leaking a report named Russian Disinformation Apparatus Taking Advantage of Coronavirus Concerns. The report identified specific accounts which the government identified as problematic, including one which speculated about lab origins of COVID. As 2020 progressed, requests to suspend undesired accounts began to escalate from all over, from the Treasury Department, the NSA, virtually every state, the Department of Housing and Human Services, the FBI, and even DHS. They also received an astonishing variety of requests from officials asking for individuals they didn't like to be banned. Here, the Office for Democrat and House Intel Committee Chief Adam Schiff asked Twitter to ban journalist Paul Sperry. Taibbi concludes it all led to the situation described by Michael Schellenberger two weeks ago in which Twitter was paid $3 million essentially for being an overwhelmed subcontractor. Quote, Twitter wasn't just paid for the amount of work they did for government. They were underpaid, according to Taibbi. Uh, so this is more really interesting stuff from the Twitter files. And I have a couple takeaways, one being I think Yoel Roth, the Twitter executive who was much maligned in the earlier dispatches, has kind of been wrongly thrown under the bus. I've now seen enough uh, communications between law enforcement and Yoel Roth and Yoel Roth and other employees where it's clear he's pushing back. It's clear he's frustrated with what the intelligence community, community is asking. It's clear he's calling, he's calling BS on it. And several times he's saying, you're saying these are all Russian, uh, Russian accounts affiliated with the effort to to uh, to undermine our elections or right. the, the U.S., we're saying, no, they're not. We have no evidence right. of that. They're just like, and, and nobody's seeing this content. It doesn't matter. Stop. What are you talking about? Right. That's what Twitter is saying to the government. Right. And then the government steps it up and says, okay, you're not going to take this seriously? Well, we have some friends at Politico and, and other journalist outlets who would love to hear about how social media companies are not doing much to, to preserve the integrity of our elections. How does that sound? Yeah, that's one of the craziest parts of this, that coercive aspect of it where they were using um, kind of discontent they could gin up in the media to put the target on some of these companies that up until that point hadn't really been scrutinized or for which there had been no real proof that they had been doing anything wrong. But once you get a couple articles written about how maybe yes. there's something- Are you Useful idiots in the press. Right. I'm using that ironically now. Yeah. They're saying, um, uh, you know, Russia, Ru Russia, Russia, Russia. Russia. Any connection to Russia is just enough. You just have to print the word Russia. Yeah. Russia, Facebook, Russia, yeah. Twitter. Very bad. Yeah. And I'm, I'm really glad you said that because, you know, some of us have 
saying since the beginning. It's not that when he were any heroes of these tech companies, they do plenty that is wrong. But it seems kind of evident from the beginning. These are not ideological decisions oftentimes that are being made. They are being pushed to make ideological yes, decisions by exactly. ideological partisans. But these are businesses, tech companies, who just want to have limited liability. They want to go about their business. They don't want to get caught up in all of this. They just want to make money. So there's a conversation to be had about protecting them from political influence. There's a conversation to be had about whether or not, because of the ideological pride of the people who work there, they're more or less likely to go along with certain political projects than others. I think that's all perfectly fair. But the fundamental issue here is that the the government keeps trying to influence these companies. And you see over and over again, we were just talking about this during break, companies like Facebook proposing changes to their policy, like doing end-to-end encryption, not especially because they care about the welfare, safety, and privacy of users, but because they want to be able to plausibly say to uh, law enforcement officials, hey, I can't actually turn over these emails. Hey, I can't actually turn over these messages. Hey, I can't actually rat on the woman who tried to order the abortion pill over the over the web. I don't want to be involved in these political debates at all. I want to be used by a diverse constituency of people across the world and just make money. So we got to get to the root of the problem and stop trying to act like, as much as they're problematic, these, these figureheads like... Uh, Jack or Zuckerberg or whomever are the root of the problem. Yes, and we we should mention the legislative part of the push as well. So they're getting pressure from law enforcement, from the FBI, from government intelligence services, who are then leaking to the media to put additional pressure, the negative publicity, at a time when they're preparing to be, uh, the, the legislature, Dems, Republicans too, they're preparing to drag them before Congress. I believe it was Senator Mark Warner was the one who was mentioned in, in this batch of Twitter files. I'd have to double check who it was. But a prominent Democratic senator who is just inveighing over and over again against Twitter because of the uh, the Russia connection, because of the, the safety of our elections, and, and being very explicit about, well, this is why we need new regulation. This is why this is not good enough. This is why you can't just be allowed to do your own thing, because you're allowing all this you know, Russian propaganda. What he's saying is is false. It's not true. Those things are not connected to Russia. It's it, it, it had very little effect on an election. It's not even necessarily illegitimate. Like they're allowed to say what they think, and it, the the extent to which it's like mind control from Russia is just so overstated. It's comical at this point, and I, you know I'm not saying anything you don't know or our audience doesn't know. We've talked about it a lot, but that's what the, the Democrats in Congress were saying that the intelligence officials. So they're threatening that the intelligence officials are saying, well, here's the people you need to take down. And we're going to smear you in the media, which will then add more additional fuel to the fire for the Congress creating a firestorm over this. You see why eventually, over time, they just start saying, okay, what do you want us to take down? Fine. Yeah. What's next? Fine. Yeah. Part and then they're overwhelmed with requests. Yeah, the, <laughs> and then they're doing little else. The, the legal aspect of this, as someone who did practice corporate law for seven years and knows that most of my workload was reviewing documents, like I, I understand the optics of Twitter taking money to do these tasks, and there are some perverse incentives there. At the same time, that is literally why so many law firms are getting paid point blank, period. Their entire job is reviewing documents, and they basically uh, made t- Twitter do the exact same kind of uh, internal review. That is the sum total of what law firm work actually is. So I'm not surprised that it's an incredibly time-consuming process. It's an incredibly expensive process. It's a detail-oriented process that you know you can't really punt to uh, juniors very easily. And they were really put in quite the bind. If the government is going to require that kind of review, they either have to take it upon themselves or compensate people for it. And, and this, is, this is the last piece of this puzzle. And I mentioned this yesterday. 
I do think that there is value in reviewing all of these documents. And it is putting a high burden on the folks who are administering the Twitter files to be just a small handful of journalists, three, four, five people who are doing that and overlooking what must be hundreds of thousands of pages of emails over the course of the year. Mm -hmm. So I really do hope at some point there is a choice to open up this catalog the same way that we had access to the Podesta files and we're able to see all sorts of machinations going on with Hillary Clinton in 2016 and, and efforts to influence the press. It seems like there's a much more sophisticated operation going on at this point because of the influence of social media. And it is terrifying to think where this could go next if we don't put the kibosh on it and there isn't some real response to what these Twitter files have revealed now. I would love to ask Yoel Roth or, or someone who is in a position like him, if they could do it again, what mm -hmm. would they do differently? Would they they, maybe they would say we would tell the FBI to go to hell. Yeah. We would say screw all you. Or whistleblow. I, they, yeah. Maybe they would leak the emails and get this all over with a long time yeah. ago. And but show they probably how assumed a greater degree of competence on the part of law enforcement yeah. officials than was warranted. That's yeah. a lesson Republicans have had That's to learn. Mistake. That's a lesson everybody has to learn. <laughs> yeah. While we're still anxiously awaiting the release of the Fauci files, which Elon Musk teased last week, rising host Bacha Ungar Sargon spoke to Fox Business about the upcoming drop. Let's watch that. I definitely want to know more about the, you know, the ways in which Twitter and Dr. Fauci intersected. Um, I think there was a lot of misdirection, a lot of very bad advice coming out of Dr. Fauci's office, and I think that there was a real failure of introspection. So I'm looking forward to seeing what was there. I do have to say I find it very interesting that Elon Musk is not more interested in where COVID came from. He's not more interested in China's role in this pandemic that killed millions and millions and millions of Americans. You know, for all of his tweeting and all of this, you know, disclosing this disclose that he never accidentally says is anything negative about the CCP and right. we know that that's because his entire supply chain is in China and so he is very careful not to offend China and I think that that really weakens his position as you know yeah. this moral arbiter of truth and free speech and so forth. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad Bacha keeps yeah. making that point. It's a solid argument. Look, I've noticed a trend, Robbie, where if we do a segment that is at all critical of Elon Musk, just reporting on the fact of his Tesla stock price going down, some ideological inconsistencies with the way that he's been pursuing this um, free speech absolutist approach on the platform, a lot of folks in our audience aren't big fans. They, mm. they don't really like I've it. I've noticed that. Yeah, I, they, they don't seem to, they don't respond well in the comments, and they don't tend to even click on articles that kind of signal out, out front, we're going to say something kind of negative about Elon Musk. But I think it's important because, like it or not, the principles that he was articulating, I think, were good ones, and ones that I think a lot of folks on the left could get behind. The fact of the censorship of accounts, we know hurt the left as well. When we're talking about Russiagate and who it hurt, we know that you know, Bernie Sanders was accused of uh, having Russia at his back uh, when he won the Nevada primary because it was such a threat to the Democratic establishment. I, you know, I'm probably you as well, have been called a Putin puppet more times than I could count. I'm practically going to get the tattoo at this point. So, you know, these things were important to pursue. And that's why I think it is so important for people like Batya to be raising these inconsistencies and say, if you really care about these principles, don't sully them by basically prioritizing your personal economic interests or over what should be legitimate free speech uh, concerns that should extend to your manufacturing, the, the home of your manufacturing enterprises in China as well. Mm. Well, I think we're going to hear for, uh, more on that subject from Bacha later this week, and we'll have more rising right after this.